Homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. A request has come in from a Kalinamitta and they say, my husband and I are traveling to Stravasti, Saranath and Kushnika later this month. My question is what are the things that are recommended to be done in these places? For example, forgiveness, aspirations, dedicating merits, wishing to be always with the teachings of the Buddha? And how do we do it correctly and effectively? Your guidance would be greatly appreciated. We don't know when we will get an opportunity to visit there again. So we would like to make the best of this opportunity. Kindly guide us. This is a really beautiful request because when I read this the first time, there was such an uplifting feeling. It was like being taken back to those places where one has done pilgrimage before and so many blessings and precious moments. There is something for everyone in this session. The Buddha says that when you see these places, it's very inspiring. It creates a sense of urgency, a sense of sadda, faith and conviction in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And so let's travel together in answering this request. There are a number of things that we'll cover during this session. The first is the Buddha's words on the four inspiring places. We'll also look at a handful of other inspiring places, places where the Buddha has taught, the Dhamma, places where the Buddha has visited and stayed. And we'll also then look to the different things that can be done while on pilgrimage. So there's Bodhi Puja, honoring the Bodhi tree, Buddha Puja, honoring the Buddha and the relics of the Buddha. There is making other offerings and, of course, sharing the merits. Then we'll also take a look at taking the three refuges and observing the precepts, why this is beneficial while on pilgrimage. Then we'll look at making noble aspirations while on pilgrimage. And as part of that, we'll look at transgressions, prostrations and asking for forgiveness. And then we'll look at recitation or chanting. And one of the last things we'll look at is quite an important one, which is contemplating the suttas in the places where they were taught. This is something that not a lot of people actually do, but it's very beneficial, particularly if you do sutta meditations. There's something very fruitful about undertaking these types of meditations in the places where the Buddha and the Noble Arahants have practiced before, or where the questions were asked and the teachings were given. Let's look at the Sangbejaniya Sutta, and this is Anguttara chapter 4, discourse number 118. And the Buddha says, Bhikkhus, these four inspiring places should be seen by a clansman endowed with conviction. What for? 1. The place where the Tathagata was born. 2. The place where the Tathagata awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment. 3. The place where the Tathagata set in motion the unsurpassed wheel of the Dhamma. 4. The place where the Tathagata attained final Nibbana by the Nibbana element without residue remaining. These bhikkhus are the four inspiring places that should be seen by a clansman endowed with conviction. Sadda. So the first place is Lumbini. That's where the Buddha was born. The second place is Bodhgaya which used to be called Uruvela in the suttas. So that's where the Tathagata was perfectly enlightened all on his own. The third is Sarna. In the suttas, it's known as Isipatana. And this is where the Buddha gave the first teaching and set the wheel in motion. And then the fourth one is where the Buddha realized or attained Mahaparinibbana. So this is Kushnika, and this used to be called Kusinara. So when we look at these four inspiring places, this is what the Buddha recommends, that when you visit these places, they inspire us, and particularly the connection to sattā. So as we know, sattā is so important in terms of the spiritual faculty. We know it is the foundation pillar for the good qualities. And so when you visit these places that are linked to the Tathagata, it is something that aids the development of this quality and in walking the path. If one visits the place where the Buddha was born, 
then we would usually exclaim, oh, this is the place where the Tathagata was born in Lumbini. And what we know from the suttas and just the background to the birth of Prince Siddhartha is that he was born to King Suddhodana and Queen Mahamaya. This was in the village of the Sakyan kingdom, Lumbini. So Queen Mahamaya was traveling from Kaplavatu to Devdaha and she was passing through a sal grove when she experienced labor pains. And so that's how she came to stop there. And she bathed in what is now the sacred pond. So when you visit Lumbini, you visit Maya Devi temple, which is dedicated to the Buddha's mother. And adjacent to the temple is the sacred pond. So what we know is that Prince Siddhartha Gautama was later the one who became the Buddha. When you visit Bodhgaya, you come to think, ah, this is the place where the Buddha was perfectly enlightened all on his own. And we know that Prince Siddhartha left the royal household life at the age of 29, so he still had relative youth. And he traveled looking in search of the truth. This was his noble search. And as he searched, he met different teachers and practiced with them and knew that they weren't the answer. And so he kept on until he came to Uruvela, which is now Bodhgaya. At Uruvela, he decided to undertake austerities, such as fasting, holding his breath, meditating in forests and cemeteries, also wearing rag robes that came from rubbish heaps and graveyards. And as he practiced these for six years in Uruvela, he realized that he was weakened, very much weakened, and it didn't lead to liberation. After he was offered some milk rice by Sujata, he started to gain his strength. And the five ascetics who were waiting upon him, when they saw him eat solid food, they were disappointed, thinking that he re had reverted to indulgence, and so they left. But when he started meditating at the foot of a Bodhi tree, he realized perfect enlightenment all on his own and he began practicing the middle way which is really the Noble Eightfold Path. So what's very interesting when you visit Bodhgaya is that sense of being around the Mahabodhi tree where the Buddha was perfectly enlightened and the places that he was around in that vicinity for the seven weeks after his enlightenment where he did walking meditation where he contemplated more of the Dhamma, and also where he contemplated whether or not he should teach, who he could teach. And what's really interesting is when he had the thought that it was very difficult to teach the Dhamma, that it's not for those who are living with greed, hatred and delusion, that is when Brahma Sahampati came and made a request, an invitation to teach the Dhamma for those with a little dust in their eyes. And when you think about each of us, we are with a little bit of dust in our eyes, a little bit of conviction, confidence and faith in the Buddha, then this request was made for us. And so this is what you reflect upon when you, when you visit Bodhgaya, how very special this place is. And it's very inspiring to be so connected with the Buddha in the place where he was enlightened, perfectly enlightened and awakened. When the Buddha asked the question, whom could he teach the Dhamma to? The first he thought of was Alara Kalama. And unfortunately, Alara Kalama had passed away seven days prior. Then he thought of the second teacher, which was Udaka Ramaputta. And unfortunately, he had passed away the night before. Then he thought of the five ascetics, the group of five who had attended upon him especially when he was engaging and striving, and they were very helpful to him. And then he thought, where are they living? And he saw with his divine eye that they were at Isipatana, the deer park, which is in Sarnath now. So he made his way from Uruvela, and that is where he gave his first teaching. So when we visit Sarnath, what we think to ourselves is, ah, oh, this is where the Buddha gave the first discourse, and he set in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. So when he got to Sarna, he met the five ascetics, which was Kundanyo, Badia, Vapa, Mahanama, and Asachi. 
So the teaching he gave we know as Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta and what we know is that he rejected the practice of austerity or the extremes of asceticism and self-mortification and he rejected the path of sensual pleasures and sensual happiness and instead he taught the middle way which is the Noble Eightfold Path. Then he defined the Four Noble Truths and analyzed them in 12 aspects and it ended with Venerable Kundanyo becoming the first person, apart from the Buddha, to realize the Dhamma. So he entered the stream. Venerable Kundanyo was the first to take novice ordination and then also higher ordination. And the Buddha spent the first rainy season at Sarnath. It was in this place that these original five ascetics, they all realized Arahantship after the second teaching of the Buddha. So when we go there, we reflect on this. The fourth and final place that the Buddha mentions as an inspiring place is in Kushnagar. And it's the place where when you arrive there, you think, ah, oh, this is the place where the Buddha attained Mahaparinibbana. So final extinguishment by the Nibbana element without residue remaining. So nothing left over, no coming back. It's also the place where the relics of the Buddha, after he was cremated, they were divided into eight equal portions and given to different kingdoms in order for them to be able to honor and venerate them. We also have a very similar account in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Before the Buddha's passing, he was having this dialogue with Venerable Ananda, who was saying to the Buddha, that when the bhikkhus complete the rainy season, they would normally visit the Buddha and then they would get to see the esteemed or noble bhikkhus and pay homage to them. And so after the Buddha passes, they won't get to do that. And so the Buddha gives this same teaching to Venerable Ananda saying, these four inspiring places are the places where you can go and see if you have conviction. And this would be very useful and he says the same thing for monks, nuns, laymen and laywomen. And at the end of the account he says, anyone who passes away while on pilgrimage to these shrines will, when their body breaks up after death, be reborn in a good place, a heavenly realm. So that's also very good to know. Other than the four places that the Buddha nominated as inspiring places for us to visit, we also, when we go on Buddhist pilgrimage, seek out the places where the Buddha spent time, where he visited, stayed or taught important teachings. One of the areas that we often go to pilgrimage is in Rajgir, because this was the place known as Rajagaha, the ancient capital of the kingdom of Magadha. And it's in this place that King Bimbisara offered the bamboo grove, which is Veluvanna. And the Buddha spent the second, third and fourth rainy seasons in this place and gave teachings around this place. He also came back to Rajagaha for his 17th year and also the 19th and 20th years as well. He spent the rainy season there. Also in Rajagir is the very famous Vulture's Peak. So when you listen to the suttas, there are particular accounts where the Buddha has given teachings at Vulture's Peak. One of them that we've recently been through is the Mahasaropama Sutta, so the simile of the hardwood. And clearly this is also where Devadatta had left the Sangha. So all these things happened in this particular place. The verses of protection that were given by the four great kings when King Vesavanna gave them to the Buddha. This also happened at Vulture's Peak. Also the very famous Singlovada Sutta, the moral principles that were laid down for lay people. This is the teaching that the Buddha also gave here. So Vulture's Peak was also a place where the monks and the Buddha, the Sangha, they came to actually practice in solitude. So it's a very wonderful place to visit, very nice to climb up and, and to see uh, the top of the mountain as well, top of the peak. One of the really lovely places to visit is Sravasti, previously known as Savati. And a 
as we know, the Buddha spent a very long time here. In fact, 25 years of his life was spent here. And he predominantly stayed at Jetha's Grove, which was offered by Anathapindika, and partially at Pubarama, which was also offered by Visaka. So many of the teachings that we read about, particularly from the Majjhima when you read, it is always when he's at Savati. So many different teachings. So it's very lovely to go and visit and see how big this monastery actually is, particularly Jetha's Grove, and to spend some time around the Kuti, the, the main one which is said to have been where the Buddha stayed and meditated and received people. It really takes you back to that time. Many of these places, when you visit them, something resonates in you, something grounds you. When you settle down after the excitement of visiting these places and also the activity in all of these places, but when you take a few quiet moments just to walk around and then to sit quietly, particularly in a few important places, you get the sense of groundedness. You also get a sense of just amazement and wonder. It's quite often wonderful to reflect on the Buddha and also to reflect on the Noble Arahants. Even lay people like Anathapindika, Visaka, these are all people that come to mind when you visit these places. You think how wondrous the offering of these lay people. And in your mind, you can anamodana their generosity, their relinquishment, their renunciation of wealth. So very amazing. We can now look at some of the things that can be done while on pilgrimage, some suggestions. The first is Bodhi Puja. And this is around venerating or honouring the sacred Bodhi tree. We know this as Mahabodhi tree. We do this because this is the tree under which the Buddha realised perfect enlightenment. So we make offerings. So the offerings that can be made are flowers, water, milk rice, fruits, medicinal items. What you see when you visit, for example, Mahabodhi temple is that there are a lot of offerings all around the temple. So there are offerings being made under the foot of the tree. There are certain tables and other, other things where you can offer. But there's all places around the temple where you can offer. So sometimes you see a lot of water offerings, food offerings, different types of things being made. Those are options that can be made. It's very nice to offer something. And if you don't go to Bodhgaya, there's still another opportunity if you're going to Sravasti. Another Bodhi tree is there. And offerings can also be made in the same way. Now, while you're there at Mahabodhi Temple, it's very nice to bow or prostrate under the tree, also to circumambulate the tree in a clockwise direction. Very nice to go around. Sometimes what people do is they chant quietly or recite the, the suttas. So this is also optional. Um, and if it's not too busy, it's very nice to do that. If not, it's also nice to find a place either under the tree or even if you've already spent time under the tree to find some other place around the temple to quietly meditate and contemplate the Dhamma. There's lots of accounts from the legends of the Thera, so the Thera Apadana, where many of the noble Arahants have previously offered Bodhi Puja. And when they've done Bodhi Puja, what they say in their accounts is that they've come to know no bad rebirth and then they go on to explain what their rebirths were. And so that's the fruit of offering Bodhi Puja. So it's something that is very wonderful to do. It's also something that really brightens the mind. Another thing that can be done is the Buddha Puja. And this is really around honouring the Buddha and honouring the relics of the Buddha. So in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, what we learn is that when the Buddha's corpse was cremated, there was no ash or soot that was found after it was cremated. Only the relics remained. So these were the relics that were divided up into eight different portions. The different kingdoms that had made the request wanted to enshrine the relics and to be able to worship them in stupas. So the eight kingdoms were Ajatasattu, so king of Magadha, also the Lichavis of Vesali, the Sakyans of Kapilavatu, the Bullas of Alakapa, the Kolyans of Ramagama, and also to the Brahman of Vethadipa, and to the Malas of Pava, and of course, Malas of Kusinara. 
So Donna in Cusinara actually made them up into eight equal portions. And so monuments were made far and wide. And of course, there were other different relics of the Buddha that were also taken and, and put in different places. So what is said also in this sutta is that through their glory, this rich earth is adorned with the best of offerings. Thus, the seer's corpse is well honored by the honorable. It is venerated by the king of devas, nagas and deities, and likewise venerated by the finest kings of men. Honor it with joined palms, so Anjali, when you get the chance, for a Buddha is rare even in a hundred eons. So this is what we should do when we come to different stupas, different places where the Buddha has practiced, then it's something that we also bear in mind. So again, there's offerings that can be made. So usually people offer flowers, they offer water, they offer milk rice, fruits, incense, oil lamps. So in particular temples, there are places where you can offer oil lamps, so it's done in a safe manner. Also medicinal items. So what's interesting is when you read the accounts in the Vimana Vattu, so these are different accounts by those in the heavenly mansions of the heavenly realms. There are certain accounts like this is one example from the Pita Vimana Vattu. So this is Vimana Vattu number 47. And it says, if people offer something to the Supreme Buddha when he is alive or after he has passed away, as long as they have the same confident mind on both occasions, the results will be the same. Beings are reborn in heaven because of their confident minds. The reference to confident minds is always about sadda, that quality of faith, conviction and confidence. As it says, if the Buddha was alive, you offer. It's the same as if he's not alive and you offer, but you offer it with such a conviction, such a, an understanding of the importance of what he had done, what he has left as the legacy, the teachings for us to save ourselves. So with that in mind, you make the offering. So again, you can bow and prostrate to the relics of the Buddha, hence why you see people bowing in front of stupas, bowing in front of uh, Buddha rupas. The significance is really what it means for you, and it can be devotional. There are people that do it out of utmost devotion, but there are also others that do it out of that sense of knowing. When we do Bodhi Puja and when we do Buddha Puja, it's really out of a sense of deep gratitude that when you offer it, it's more than just the sake of offering because you're on pilgrimage. You offer it because this is the opportunity to connect with something that is very, very heartfelt. That when you understand different aspects of the teaching of the Buddha, the value of the Buddha's teachings, that is what connects you to wanting to make the offering out of very sincere gratitude that if it were not for these teachings, one could not save oneself, or would not be able to find the security, the security of stream entry, the security of more fruits of the path, and to get ourselves out of this whole entire predicament. So again, what you see when you visit uh, many of these places on pilgrimage is you see people bowing, you see people prostrating, you see people circumambulating and chanting and reciting. So all those things are possible. Much of it when you do it, it is to calm the mind, to genuinely be in the place. Sometimes it takes so much effort, so much money, so much time to take ourselves on pilgrimage. And so when you're there, don't get swept away with the activity of it all or get swept away with all the thoughts and the people and things like that. Just take time for yourself. Even if you don't have a lot of time to do this pilgrimage, take moments of time to really connect. Connect with the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And in that way, you really make the most of it. If you have longer time, then there's always time to pause, to take hours out of your time to spend in these places. Now, word of caution. In the Petavatu, so these are the accounts from the Pretharel, and one of the accounts is in the Dalu Vivana Petavatu. So this is number 35. So let me just read this account from the Petavatu. So there was this ghost who was in Rajagaha and he was extremely wealthy. And one day his wife and daughter and daughter-in-law were going to worship a stupa. And these held the relics of the Buddha. They had prepared flowers, so lotus flowers, garlands made of flowers and incense. 
and this wealthy man, he stopped them from going there. So that was the evil deed that he did. And he said there were 86,000 ghosts also suffering along with him in the hungry ghost realm. They all committed the same evil deed of insulting the worshipping of the Buddha relics. And so they are suffering intensely in the hungry ghost realm as if they were in hell. So this is his warning. If one criticizes worshipping the relics of the Supreme Buddha, that person loses a great meritorious activity. And he goes on to say that when he is released from the hungry ghost realm and if he is born into the human world he will diligently worship again and again the stupa of the relics of the supreme buddha so that's quite an important thing that even if you don't venerate or honor the relics of the buddha don't prevent somebody else from doing so again you see the contrast between the vimanavattu so the beings in the heavenly realms and those in the petavattu and so there's the distinction there from the suttas that you can see one is very meritorious and one is demeritorious. Just a little more on making offerings. When you go to the Therapadana, so the legends of the Theras, and also the Vimanavatu, so the stories of the celestial mansions, you see a lot about the different kinds of offerings that are made. So you see accounts of flower offerings or flower puja. You see accounts of building stupas or repairing stupas. You see accounts of offering oil lamps and different, different accounts of offering shade, offering umbrella, all kinds of things, all different requisites to the Sangha that have been offered. And they always say that they've come to know no bad rebirth, that it's always a good result from making such offerings. Again, when we do certain things, it's very important that this is making merit. Now, some people discount making merit because they don't understand that, you know, when you think about Dhanakata, it's the first thing that is given in the gradual teachings and for good reason. Sometimes we need a lot of merit. I know from my own personal experience, not being born into a Buddhist culture, when you come to the teachings, sometimes it's very hard to understand and you think, what is wrong with me? But oftentimes it's because there's not enough merit. Sometimes when it's very difficult to go on pilgrimage or it's very difficult to go and see an important teacher or it's very difficult to go through a certain passage of time, it's because there's not enough merit. So one of the very easy things to do, particularly when you're on pilgrimage, is to make offerings. Make offerings wherever you can. And if you make offerings to the Sangha, if you make offerings when you're visiting certain places, these are all very good. And of course, like I said before, reflecting with gratitude towards the Buddha, towards the Dhamma, towards the Sangha, making this very, very conscious. And at the same time, know that you're developing generosity. And by developing generosity, you are giving up stinginess, which is a very huge hindrance to the path. When you know that you are cultivating that, cultivating the opposite of stinginess, this is something that very much aids the development of the path, the Noble Eightfold Path, and it aids any aspiration for safety, anything that leans towards Nibbana, to ascending upwards, all of that sort of thing. So it's very good to do it very consciously, to know why you are doing it, not doing it for the sake of just being a good person, doing it for more than that to know that it is part of the path. It actually helps us to then train in the higher trainings, to be virtuous, to concentrate the mind, to develop wisdom. You need this generosity, this giving as one of the supports, one of the foundations. When we talk about making offerings or giving, it's also very good to talk about dedicating the merits or sharing the merits. And so the sutta that comes to mind comes again from the Petavatu, so the stories of the hungry ghost realm. And this is number five, which is Tirukuta Petavatu. And if you remember, this is the sermon or the teaching that the Buddha gave to King Bimbisara after an alms offering, that after having been born in the ghost world, departed relatives come back to their own houses and stand by the doors. They also stand outside walls and at intersections. Some people in the family will enjoy delicious food without remembering their departed relatives. But departed relatives are forgotten because of their own bad karma. And then it goes on, some compassionate people offer delicious food and drink to the virtuous people and share merits with their departed relatives saying, 
Let this be for our relatives. May our relatives be happy. Departed relatives gather to these places and highly appreciate the offering. And so what they do is they bless their relatives. They say, may our relatives who compassionately offered us these gifts have long, happy and healthy lives. So the givers also gain good results. Then the Buddha goes on, beings in the ghost realm do not farm, herd cattle, trade, buy, sell or use gold and money. They survive on merits shared by humans. As water that rains on a mountaintop flows down to the bottom, so will the merits shared from the human world reach the beings in the ghost world. Just as streams of water fill the ocean, so will the merits shared from the human realm reach the beings in the ghost realm. One should share merits with departed relatives, recalling, He gave to me, he worked for me, he was a relative, friend and companion. And then the Buddha says, Weeping, sorrow and lamentation will not benefit departed relatives in any way. They will remain in the ghost world no matter how much we cry. And then he says to King Bimbisara, Great King, the merits shared from the donations given to the noble disciples of the Buddha will be received by the departed relatives right away. They will enjoy happiness for a long time. Sharing merits with departed relatives is a very good habit to develop. So this is something that we must remember whenever we make offerings to the Noble Sangha, when we make offerings in any which way. It's very good to share the merits of these good deeds with our departed relatives. We don't always have to think personally of them. We have numerous departed relatives, ones that we cannot even remember, know or count. So when we do this, it's a blessing and they bless us back. So this is something to bear in mind that always share the merit. A question that's often asked is about taking the three refuges. If you haven't taken the three refuges before and you really feel that compulsion to do so on pilgrimage, that is a very wonderful thing to do. And you simply go in front of the Mahabodhi tree or you go in front of uh, one of the stupas containing the Buddha relics or you go to a place that evokes a lot of conviction and confidence in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and you take the three refuges there. Now many of us who are on pilgrimage we've taken the three refuges before. So this is just a suggestion but sometimes when we take the three refuges we do it with a sense of normalcy. But when you're on pilgrimage, sometimes it's really good to make it very, very conscious that there's something that you connect with in the place that you are visiting, where the Buddha has stayed, where something significant has happened, where one of the teachings of the Buddha or the Noble Arahants has resonated with you. When you take the three refuges with that connection, there's something very amazing that can happen. And so as a suggestion, sometimes when you're in these different places that you're pilgrimaging to, it's very good to take the three refuges. There is no such thing as taking the refuges too many times. One of the questions that people also ask is around observing the precepts. So people ask about observing five precepts and observing particularly eight precepts. There is no hard and fast rule around how one does pilgrimage and whether you keep eight precepts. There is certain merit and certain blessings that come if you keep eight precepts when you do pilgrimage. It's just something of a renunciation that adds to the, to the journey that you're taking in terms of walking the footsteps of the Buddha. But there is no rule that says that you must. Keeping five precepts is enough. Keeping five precepts means that you are living an upright life, particularly for a layperson. So there's a sutta that I wanted to mention. It's the Panchasikapada Sutta. This is Sangyutta Nikaya, chapter 14, discourse number 25. It's about like elements, and we talk about like elements a lot. So in this particular sutta, it's at Savati, and the Buddha says, because it is by way of elements that beings come together and unite. Those who abstain from killing living beings come together and unite with those who abstain from killing living beings. Those who abstain from taking what is not given come together and unite with those who abstain from taking what is not given. Those who abstain from sexual misconduct come together and unite with those who abstain from sexual misconduct. Those who abstain from false speech come together and unite with those who abstain from false speech. Those who abstain from wine, liquor and intoxicants 
that cause negligence come together and unite with those who so abstain. Now the reason that I particularly pick this sutta is because when you're on pilgrimage, you're really with those that are purified. You think about all the places that you're visiting, it's where all the noble ones have practiced, where the Buddha has practiced, where they have lived. And so they are the ones that kept the monastic Vinaya. They're also the places where the lay people that supported them visited. So you think about Visaka, Anathapindika, Chitta the householder, Velukantaki, all these different names that we've read about in the suttas. So as you visit these places, it's like like elements coming together. And so when you're on pilgrimage, part of the reason for going on pilgrimage is to develop more confidence, develop more conviction towards the path and towards the Buddha in particular. Even around any of these precepts, it's very good to maintain that upright action through body, speech and mind. And so that's just something to think about. It makes sense when you lead a purified life and go on pilgrimage. Because when you think about all the different transgressions that we make along the way, being on pilgrimage is a way to absolve some of them. And we'll go on and talk about some of these things. Talk about noble aspiration and asking for forgiveness and things like that. So when it comes to the precepts, there's also something that is part of that foundation. So we talked about dana kata before in terms of giving. Now we talk about sila kata. So in terms of sila, virtuous behavior is a very important foundation for the rest of the path. It is another stepping stone. So when that virtue is there, if you have the aspiration to practice while you're on pilgrimage in terms of developing the mind, which I do recommend, then it's very good to keep the precepts. When it comes to eight precepts, there's something very, very wonderful because in a way it's part of the renunciation. You think about the Buddha's renunciation, the great renunciation. You think about the renunciation of those that have gone forth, the noble arahants. And you think about the lay people and they renunciated. Maybe this is the opportunity now to be like them. In normal householder life, it's difficult, but on pilgrimage, it's something slightly different. And so that's another way of looking at it, an opportunity to be like them, an opportunity to, to really look at the spiritual life outside of work, outside of home life, outside of those duties and responsibilities, and offer that to yourself, a way of practice that you would otherwise not normally do or a way of extending the practice that you would normally do. So this is an encouragement, more so than anything else. The choices are really always up to you. We can now look at noble aspiration. And this is again something that's so very important. In fact, this is a question that was asked by King Melinda to Venerable Nagasena. And he was saying, and how is aspiration the sign of conviction? So Sadda. And Venerable Nagasena says, just as one who develops spiritual practice, having seen how the minds of others have been released, aspires to enter upon the fruit of stream entry, or the fruit of once returning, or the fruit of non-returning, or to realize arahanship itself, and applies oneself to the attainment of what he has not yet reached to the experience of what he has not yet felt, to the realization of what he has not yet realized. Thus, this aspiration is the sign of conviction. So the word that is used in this particular sutta is sampakandana, and that means aspiration, leaping forward. So when we have this noble aspiration, it's really a sign of our conviction towards Buddha Dhamma Sangha to the fact that the Buddha was perfectly enlightened all on his own, to the Dhamma which is good in the beginning, in the middle and in the end, to the Sangha, that there are these four pairs, these eight kinds of noble beings. So when we connect with that and we understand that the supreme sanctuary, the supreme safety is Nibbana, that there are these noble beings who have practiced before us, who have these attainments of path and fruit, then it's very good to have that noble aspiration to be like them that you want to reach what they've reached and to realize it. So when you are in these different places, when you go to, whether it's Bodhgaya, Kusinara, Lumbini, you know, wherever you go on Buddhist pilgrimage, 
any of these sites that contain the relics of the Buddha or where the Buddha has trod, where he had taught, stayed, this is where you can make your noble aspiration. We can now look at the area of transgressions and prostrations and also asking for forgiveness. So one of the suttas that we can look at is the Ovada Sutta. This is Sangyutta Nikaya chapter 16, discourse number 6. And in this particular instance, there were a couple of bhikkhus or a number of bhikkhus who were in dispute over the Dhamma. So they were competing with each other and speaking in terms of their, their learning and, and basically doing something quite foolish. And so the Buddha was reproaching them. And, and then what they did was they prostrated themselves with their heads at the Blessed One's feet. And they said, Venerable Sir, we have committed a transgression. So foolish, so confused, so inept were we, in that having gone forth in such a well-expounded Dhamma and discipline, we competed with each other in regard to our learning, as to who can speak more, who can speak better, who can speak longer. Venerable Sir, may the Blessed One pardon us for our transgression, seen as a transgression for the sake of future restraint. And then the Buddha says, Surely, Bhikkhus, you have committed a transgression. So foolish, so confused, so inept were you. In that having gone forth in such a well-expounded Dhamma and discipline, you competed with each other and he repeats the same thing. Then the Buddha says, But since you see your transgression as a transgression and make amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, we pardon you for it. For it is growth in the Noble One's discipline. When one sees one's transgression as a transgression, makes amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma and undertakes future restraint. So what we are reminded here is that when we transgress, it's very good to ask for forgiveness. And it's very good to bow our heads down and, and in order to do so, we humble ourselves. One of the things about prostrations, and you see it a lot in terms of the practice of the Dhamma, is that we bow a lot. And when you go to these pilgrimage sites, you see a lot of bowing and prostrating. And much of it is done because of transgression, maybe lifetimes of transgression. Now, each person is a little different in how they undertake the practice of that. But for one thing, it's very good to lower our heads, to actually admit fault. One of the things about when you enter the stream is that you will not cover up any misdeed or fault. You will own up to it. And this is part of the practice of that. As you lean towards entering the stream, if you have entered the stream, then you won't cover anything up. In fact, you'll admit it. So when you go on pilgrimage, it's very good to clean out anything that has been like a transgression. It can be anything you've done as you come onto pilgrimage. It can be things done in the past through body, speech and mind. So it's very good when you're in these holy places to actually admit certain things, to actually go through and clean. When you make amends, you make a very strong determination, a bit like when we do the meditation in Vatupama Sutta, when you have those mental stains, or when you do the Karaniyametta Sutta and you go through, through body, speech and mind, all these different things, you have a regret, but at the end of it, you make a very strong determination not to do it again. And one doesn't worry about whether you will do it again or not. You just, at that moment, with the insight of seeing that it's not a good thing to do, you make that very strong determination not to do it again. When we ask for forgiveness, there's a way that we can do it. So usually it's around our body, speech and mind. So it covers everything. That is due to negligence, wrongdoing. You ask for forgiveness of the Buddha, of the Dhamma, of the Sangha. This can be recited or chanted in Pali, which is on the left, or it could just be said in English. So if you understand the Pali, then it's good to recite in Pali. The main thing is you understand what you're reciting, what you're saying. But in many ways, you can simplify it. You can simply say, by body, speech and mind, may the Buddha forgive this transgression. Same with the Dhamma, same with the Sangha. When you take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, this can be a very powerful thing. So on pilgrimage, it's a very easy thing to do. Easy in the sense that you're in that place where there was the presence of the Buddha and the noble Arahants. You can easily do that. Ask for forgiveness. Do some bowing. Sometimes people ask, how much bowing do I need to do? I always err on the side of more. So 
the inclination sometimes is to keep going. You bow to the Buddha, you bow to the Dhamma, you bow to the Noble Sangha. And the thing is that you sometimes feel like you want to bow more. If you feel like wanting to bow more and you have no health issues, you keep going. And you do it with the idea is that you want to remove any impediments from the path to purify one's body, speech and mind of any transgression. And normally there's this feeling of lightness when you, when you get up, particularly if your intention is to overcome impediments, overcome transgressions. So bowing is good, particularly for conceit. Many of us in Dhamma, sometimes we, we don't know how conceited we can get, not wanting to sit on the ground, not wanting to put our bare feet on the ground, not wanting to be seen in a lesser sense when we practice the Dhamma and know so much. But the journey of pilgrimage is really one of humility. It's really one of lowering oneself to those that have attain Nibbana, who have walked before us, who have lived at a different time, and to all the people around us who are our brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in this birth, old age, sickness and death, each and every one, all beings actually. And in that way it makes the journey so much more uplifting, so much more a sense of community rather than that person's from that place and this person's from that place and that's a stray dog and that's a beggar and all that kind of thing. It's a softening process that comes. When we go on pilgrimage, we often see people chanting or reciting the Dhamma. This is very good. If one has the inclination to do so, bring your materials with you, uh, download them to your phone or bring the physical paper or book. The thing to remember about recitation or chanting is there's no wrong way to do it, but there is a better way. And it's to know that when you recite or chant, if you know the meaning behind what you're chanting. So for example, if you have learned how to do the Karaniya Metta Sutta, like the inside pathway, how to meditate on it and how to fully purify one's body, speech and mind and have the right view meditating on Karaniya Metta, when you chant it, then it is more powerful because you know the meaning and the inspiration behind the Dhamma. So in the Vimutta Yatana Sutta, it says, again, neither the teacher nor a fellow monk in the position of a teacher teaches the Dhamma to a bhikkhu, nor does he himself teach the Dhamma to others in detail as he has heard it and learned it, but he recites the Dhamma in detail as he has heard it and learned it. In whatever way the bhikkhu recites the Dhamma in detail, as he has heard it and learned it, in just that way, in relation to that Dhamma, he experiences inspiration in the meaning and inspiration in the Dhamma. As he does so, joy arises in him. Whenever he is joyful, rapture arises. For one with rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. This is the third basis of liberation, by means of which if a bhikkhu dwells heedful, ardent and resolute, his unliberated mind is liberated, his undestroyed taints are utterly destroyed, and he reaches the as yet unreached, unsurpassed security from bondage. This is very inspirational because this is for someone who leads the spiritual life, recites knowing the meaning and inspiration and goes into the jhanas and is able to liberate oneself. Now this is a very unique circumstance, but it gives you the upper limit. So when you are on pilgrimage and you are reciting, chanting, any of the suttas that you know the meaning of, there's something very powerful around it. One can enter into jhana very easily. Sometimes when you've had that experience, you know there's so much joy. So for example, if you chant the Karaniya Metta, in Savati, where the Buddha taught that to the monks who had come from the forest and had wanted to know what to do about the spirits that were troubling them in the forest. You chant that at Jeta's grove. There's something very powerful about it. Or you chant the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta in Sarnath, in front of the Dhammic Stupa, or in the place where the Buddha stayed in the deer park. Then 
it's very powerful because you know that is where the Buddha taught. And so when you chant, there is joy that certainly arises, particularly when you connect in that way. So there's something to be said for it. One of the really wonderful things that one can do is to meditate on the suttas while you're actually there or to just simply contemplate them or read them while you're there in the places where they were taught. This is something that if you prepare it slightly early, then you know the type of contemplation you want to do. So for example, prior to going on pilgrimage, having a little list of teachings, the ones that you're familiar with that were uh, given in certain places. And we'll go through a few examples. On my last pilgrimage, I spent quite a lot of time meditating on suttas in those actual places. And there's great fruit from doing that. So it really depends if you have more time in your, in your travel itinerary. Sometimes when you pilgrimage, what happens is you get taken here and there, particularly if you're on a tour or if there's lots of activity and sometimes there's not enough time to sit quietly in those places. And so if you have the time to plan a, a little more a room in the schedule, do so because the fruit of meditating and contemplating on the suttas when you're there is really amazing. There's something about meditating, particularly with the meditations that you're really familiar with or you're wanting to deepen and also to allow the sadda, the conviction that is rooted on the blessings of those meditations, that if you've meditated on them well at home and you go to those places and you meditate there, you can have the most amazing meditations. Now, meditation in terms of contemplation is not dependent on a, on a place. So despite me saying it's wonderful, you can easily do this at home, no problem. But there's just something that connects when you're in that place. Some of these places that we visit, they're so very familiar, even though we may not have visited them before, or we've only visited them a handful of times, but there's something that connects. And so when you go there and you're armed with the Sutta meditations and you sit there and you take some time to, to do them there, it's just such a wonderful blessing. So that's something I would recommend. So this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a very short list. So for example, when you visit Bodhgaya, it's really good to read like the Udana and to reflect on the Buddha's awakening and also on the Naga King, Mujalinda, who protects the Buddha and very much promise Sahampati's invitation to the Buddha to teach those with a little dust in their eyes and of course, Buddha's account of leaving home, his noble search, his enlightenment, and then giving his first teaching, this is all contained in the Pasarasi Sutta. This is Majjhima Discourse Number 26. So these are the things which are kind of preparatory and very helpful. If you have these in mind when you visit, it won't be so active around doing many, many things. Of course, when you go on pilgrimage, there's always activity. But there's also time for reflection and time for really allowing it to sink in when you're sitting in front of the, the bow tree and you're paying respects, honoring the bow tree. It's really nice to take oneself back to what happened to the Buddha. And of course, around Gaya, uh, Adityapariyaya Sutta, the, the third sermon or discourse of the Buddha, the fire sermon, that, that was also around there. If you go to Rajgir, Vulture's Peak, you climb up, that's a wonderful little trip. And also to see the different caves where the noble Arahants were practicing. Our recent Full Moon Poya, because of the talk, was on the Mahasaropama Sutta, so the simile of the heartwood. That was a teaching that was given at Vulture's Peak. Same with Sona Sutta, Venerable Sona and the simile of the lute how to make the right kind of effort, the Buddha's teaching was also around Vulture's Peak. Same with the longer discourse on to lay people on virtuous behavior, Singlovada Sutta, that was also there. And of course, the great protection of the fourfold Sangha, uh, Athanathya Sutta, this was also given there. And there, there are other teachings as well. This is just a selection. 
If you visit Bamboo Grove, so Veluvanna Monastery, then Chula Vedla Sutta, and many other ones as well, like little, little teachings that were given there. At Sarnath, the deer park, of course, Dhammachakapa Watana Sutta, it's very nice to chant that there, but also to contemplate the Four Noble Truths, to really look at that there. And as you do so, even if you simply look at the First Noble Truth of Suffering, there's something so remarkable about meditating at that there. So that was the first discourse of the Buddha. And of course, the second discourse was Anatalakana Sutta, where the five ascetics, they all were Sotapanas, they all became Arahants after hearing this discourse. So Anatalakana Sutta. There's also Silavanta Sutta. So if you remember the meditation on the 11 characteristics that are to be wisely contemplated, but there's also that very short meditation of, is it worth taking as me and mine? And we also looked at Katuviya Sutta, which was a very short sutta on not polluting yourself. So when you go to Savati, which is the old name, Sravasti, particularly around Anatta Pindaka's Park, so Jetha's Grove, Jetavana Monastery, a lot of teachings were given there. And I guess that's understandable because the Buddha spent the most amount of time there, particularly for the Vasas. So, Vatupama Sutta, Karaniyametta Sutta, Parabhava Sutta, Vitakasantana Sutta, Chulakama Vibhanga Sutta, many, many suttas. If you look at most of the Majjhimanikaya suttas, there's quite a few that were uh, given as a teaching at Jetavana. And so when you look and you go to Kusinara, which is now Kushnigar, then of course all the things associated with the Buddha's final days. Mahaparinibbana Sutta has many of the accounts leading to the, the Buddha's Mahaparinibbana. The Parinibbana Sutta, which is in Sanyutta Nikaya chapter 6, discourse number 15, that's also very lovely because this is after the Buddha has passed away and attained Mahaparinibbana. And Brahma Sahampathy came and led the, I guess you could say, tributes and, and verses to the Buddha, and then the noble Arahants followed suit. So these are a few examples. I think it's one of those things that if you take the time to go on pilgrimage, then one of the most amazing things is to meditate in the places where the, the teachings were taught. It brings you closer to the Buddha, closer to the noble arahants that are giving those teachings. And there's something about all those noble arahants, all those noble beings that practiced in those places, that as you're meditating there, you are practicing with them, those who have gone before, those that are practicing now. And so there's something very warm-hearted, very luminous, very precious about that. When we consider Buddhist pilgrimage, then really it's around Developing sadda, developing this quality of sadda, this very good quality of sadda. If we go to the Nagaropama Sutta, which is about the simile of the fortress or citadel, it says about sadda, the first of the good qualities, just as the pillar in the king's frontier fortress has a deep base and is securely planted, immobile and unshakable, for the purpose of protecting its inhabitants and for warding off outsiders, so too the noble disciple is endowed with conviction. One has conviction in the enlightenment of the Tathagata thus. The Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplishing true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the Blessed One. And so on this pilgrimage, you're really strengthening that. This is the Itipisogata. So when you do Buddha Nusati, as you go to these various places where the Buddha has trodden, something so wonderful about that. Walking in the same footsteps as the Buddha. Many blessings of that. We can end our session here. Let's share the merit with all sentient beings. 
May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Wishing you well. Dero and Saranai.